Greetings, dear friend. This is Through the Bible. We are in the book of John. Dear friend, a lot of us probably do know Christ. We do know those stories. Some of us have listened to all of these things right from the time we were kids. But dear friend, the more we get to understand the person of Jesus Christ, you know, we'll be able to appreciate how much he loves us. God truly loves us. And we've got to continually be reminded that he loves us and cares for us and he wants the best for us. Because so often we forget and we fail to believe. But dear friend, as we focus on what he did when he came down to this earth, I pray that each one of us would have a deeper understanding and our faith would increase. Well, dear friend, I'm sure this study is going to be of great help. Shall we pause for a moment and look to the Lord in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Thank you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It is generally assumed that the Gospel of John is easy to understand. Often you hear the cliché, the Gospel of John is the simple Gospel. And the simplicity of the language has deceived many people. It is written in monosyllabic and disyllabic words. Now let me lift out a couple of verses to illustrate. Notice how simple these words are. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is John 1, 11 to 12. We have no problem with the words themselves, but actually we are dealing here with the most profound gospel. Take an expression like this. E in me and I in you. Now this appears in John 14.20. Seven words, one conjunction, two prepositions, and four pronouns. And you could ask any child the meaning of any one of these words and he could give you a definition. But when you put them together, E in me and I in you, and neither the most profound theologian nor the great philosopher has ever been able to probe the depths of their meaning. E in me. We know he means salvation. And I in you means sanctification. But beyond that, none of us can go very far. We think sometimes because we know the meaning of words that we know what is being said. The words are simple, but... The meaning is very deep. Jerome said of John's Gospel, John excels in the depths of divine mysteries, and no truer statement was ever made. Dr. A.T. Pearson put it like this, It touches the heart of Christ. Though it is assumed that John is a simple Gospel, it is not always assumed that the Apostle John is the author of it. Now the Bar Tübingen School in Germany years ago began an attack upon the Gospel of John, and this has been a place where the liberal has really had a field day. Now, the authorship of John. You know, one professor concluded the course by saying that he thought John was the author. Then one boy in the class remarked, Well, I believe John wrote it before I started the class, and I believe it is now. So I just wasted a semester. Now let me assure you that we are not going to waste time here relative to the authorship of the gospel other than to mention two statements that make it quite obvious that John is the writer of it. 
One of the reasons it was felt that John might not be the writer was because Papias, now I've quoted him now for each of the Gospels, was thought to have never mentioned the authorship of John. Then there was Professor Tischendorf, the German who found the Codex Sinaiticus, which is probably our best manuscript of the Old Testament, down in St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinaitic Peninsula and was working in the Vatican Library when he came upon an old manuscript that was a quotation from Papias in which it was made clear that John was the author of this gospel. I personally wouldn't want any better authority than that. Also, Clement of Alexandria, who lived about AD 200, makes the statement that John was persuaded by friends and also moved by the Spirit of God to write a spiritual gospel. And I believe that the Gospel of John is that spiritual gospel. In my mind, there is not a shadow of a doubt that John is the author. However, the most significant question is, why? Why did John write his gospel? It was the last one written, probably close to AD 100. All the other apostles were dead. The writers of the New Testament were all gone and he alone was left. In an attempt to answer this question, we find again a diversity of theories. There are those who say that it was written to meet the first heresy of the church, which was Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed that Jesus was God, but not man at all. That the apostles only thought they saw him, but actually did not. And Irenaeus expressly makes the statement that the purpose of John was to confute the Gnostic Serenthus. Bartholoc makes it very clear that this is not a polemic gospel at all and he's not attempting to meet that issue. Also, there are those who say that it is a supplement to what the others had written, that he merely added other material. But his answers that by saying, This gospel is no mere patchwork to fill up a vacant space. You see, these theories do not give an adequate answer to account for all the peculiar facts that are in this gospel which a true explanation must do. And, in my judgment, the only satisfactory explanation is that John wrote at the request of the church which already had three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they were being circulated. And uh, they wanted something more spiritual and deep, something that would enable them to grow. That's exactly what Augustine, the great saint of the early church, said. In the four Gospels, or rather in the four books of the one Gospel, the Apostle St. John, not undeservedly with reference to his spiritual understanding compared to an eagle, has lifted higher and far more sublimely than the other three his proclamation and in lifting it up he has wished our hearts also to be lifted. Now that is the purpose of the Gospel of John. That is the reason that he wrote it. Accordingly, therefore, when we come to the Gospel of John, we find that he does not take us to Bethlehem. Uh, We will never grow spiritually by seeing your little town of Bethlehem umpteen times at Christmas. John won't take us to Bethlehem because he wants you and me to grow as believers. John takes us down the silent corridors of eternity through the vast emptiness of space to a beginning that is not a beginning at all. John 1.1 in the beginning was the word. Now some say that that this world came into being three billion years ago. Now, I think it has been around a lot longer than that. 
What do you think God has been doing in eternity past, twiddling his thumbs? May I say to you, he had a great deal to do in the past, and he has eternity behind him. So when you read, in the beginning, go as far back as your little puny mind can go into eternity past. Put down your peg, and Jesus Christ comes out of eternity to meet you. In the beginning, was, notice it is not is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then come down, come on down many more billions of years. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1.3 Then in the 14th verse, it takes another step. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek philosophers and the Greek mind for which Luke wrote, would stop right there and say, we are through with you, we can't follow you. But John was not writing for them and he goes even further. In verse 18 of John 1, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. Declared him is exegeted him. Led him out in the open where man can see him and come to know him. The man who had no origin is the son who comes out of eternity. Luke, who was a medical doctor, looked at him under a microscope. Though John's method is altogether different, he comes to the same conclusion as did Luke. You could never call John's method scientific. The Christian who has come to a knowledge of Christ and faith in him doesn't need to have the virgin birth gone over again. He already believes that. Therefore, when he comes to the Gospel of John, he finds sheer delight and joy unspeakable as he reads and studies it. Unfortunately, he thinks the unbeliever ought to have it also. And you'll find it is used in personal work more than any other Gospel. After all, doesn't the average believer consider it the simple Gospel? Well, is it simple? It's actually profound. It's for believers, those who know Christ in a personal way. It enables them to grow. Now one person, a professor, decided to take a class for his students, those who were interested in the Bible, and guess which book he took? He took the Gospel of John. And after some time, he found out that people were just disappearing. And then he made the statement, I wanted to give them the simple Gospel. Well, he didn't. John is not simple, dear friend. It's profound. It is for those who already know the Savior, and it's for them to study the book in a very deep way. Then there was a seminary professor in this area who decided to teach businessmen about the Bible. And guess which book he took? John. Well, it would have been much better if he had taken the Gospel of Mark. Because that's the Gospel of action, the Gospel of power, the Gospel for the strong man. But he gave them the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, my dear friend, is for those who know Christ already. When you come to chapters 13 through 17, you can write a sign over it for believers only and you could put under that all others stay out. I don't think that section was ever meant for a person who does not know Christ personally. Jesus took his own into the upper room and revealed to them things that enabled them to grow and no other gospel gives us that. Why? Because they are the evangelists who are presenting Christ as the Savior of the world. Now, why doesn't John do that? Yes, he does it, but he is primarily 
Listen, dear friend, he is primarily writing for the growth of those who already have made that lifetime commitment to follow Christ. John gives more about the resurrected Christ than does any other gospel writer. In fact, more than all the others put together. Paul said that, though we have known Christ after the flesh, we don't know him that way anymore. Rather, we know him as the resurrected Christ. For this reason, John attempts to give the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection and he mentions seven of them. The first was one of the most dramatic as he appeared to Mary Magdalene there in the garden. The second was to the disciples in the upper room, Thomas being absent. The third appearance was again to the disciples in the upper room and Thomas was present. These three appearances are all recorded in chapter 20. Then we see him appearing by the Sea of Galilee and several disciples were out fishing and he called them to the shore. Do you have any fish? John 21 verse 5. He's going to ask you that someday and he's going to ask me, have you been doing any fishing recently? Well, you catch them only the way he tells you. You have to fish by his instructions. Well, I hope you know what I'm, I'm meaning right now. And then he prepared breakfast for them. This is John 21. I wish I had been there for that outdoor breakfast. That was a real good barbecue or cookout. And friend, he still wants to feed you in the morning. Also during the day and in the evening. Yes, with spiritual food, of course. Then he commissioned Simon Peter. Simon, do you love me? John 21, 15 to 17. Jesus did not say that you have to be a graduate of a seminary to be able to serve him. The question that he asks over and over again is, do you love me? That's the only condition. Now don't misunderstand me. If you love him, you will want training to prepare you for whatever service he has in store for you. But he wants to know that you love him. The reason many people are not serving him today is that they do not love him. And then Peter was told that he was to be a martyr. But John, no. He will give on in order to write this gospel, three epistles and the book of Revelation. There are the seven appearances that John records and all of them are for believers. They minister to us today. At the time of the birth of Christ, there was a great expectation throughout the heathen world. That was a strange thing. Sutanois relates that an ancient and definite expectation had spread throughout the East that a ruler of the world would at about the time arise in Judea. Tacitus makes a similar statement. Skelegal mentions that Buddhist missionaries traveling to China met Chinese sages going to seek the Messiah about 3380. Life of Vespasian, you can find that in that book. There was an expectation, dear friend, throughout the world at that time that he might come. And it was out of the mysterious east that the wise men came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Matthew 2.2 2. The marvel is that this gospel of John, so definitely designed to meet the needs of believers, is also designed for the oriental mind as is no other. Well, the land of the east has its complexities. There is fabulous wealth, and right next to it is abject poverty. Out of this land of mystery came the wise men. They were bringing gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh for him. There are a lot of questions to be answered there. Out of that land of mystery they came. 
the land do contain on it palaces, gaudy grandeur, priceless gems. And poor Columbus, actually who was trying to find the eastern nations, ended up in in the west and discovered America. He was trying to find a new route to the east in order to bring back something of the wealth that was there, but ended up in another different place altogether. In the land of Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, Confucianism and Mohammedism, out of that area, wise men came, asking, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are coming to worship him. They needed salvation. They had none. Yes, no faith could ever give that to them. And this is the reason people you know, in the east have reveled in the gospel of John as no others have. It is a mind today that will revel in the Gospel of John. The Lord Jesus can meet the need of this type of mind, as John reveals. Out of heaven's glory he came, that one who was before any beginning that we can envision, and the word was made flesh, and walked down here among men. Now the people of the East had faiths and philosophies. After all, Israel belonged to that area of the world. John tells us that the first public act of the Lord Jesus was to go into the temple of that day and cleanse it. By this he is telling them something, these people who worshipped in their degrading temples, that God is holy. If you're going to worship God, you'll have to be cleansed. The temple would have to be cleansed. There can be no compromise with evil or wrong. A religious ruler came to Jesus one night. John alone tells us this. Our Lord that night said to this religious ruler who had everything and was and was religious to his fingertips, You must be born again. John 3.3 3. He needed to have a new life and get rid of the old religion. Jesus said that he had not come to sew a patch on the old garment, but he came to give them the robe of righteousness that would enable them to stand before a holy God. This is what the area of the world needed. Womanhood was degraded is degraded even to this day in our land. Our Lord ennobled womanhood because he came born of a woman. He went to a wedding to answer the mockery that they'd make of marriage with the harems of the East. Christ went to a wedding and put his blessing upon it. Also, Jesus sat down at a well and had a conversation with a woman of very questionable character. But she was a woman for whom he later died. The soul of a woman was as precious to him as the soul of a man. Christ fed multitudes. And then he followed the meal with a discourse on the bread of life. And then escaped because he did not want them to make him king of their stomachs. The Lord Jesus said in this gospel, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth and the life. Now, and John also says many other signs Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The thing that they needed above everything else was life, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John 20, 30 and 31. And friend, this is what the whole world needs today. Not another faith, another religion but life. Now before we begin our study of this magnificent gospel, let me call your attention to some striking features. First, the first three gospels are called synoptic gospels because they are written from the same viewpoint with a similar pattern. 
The fourth gospel, however, is different. 1. Matthew and Mark emphasize the miracles of Jesus and Luke gives attention to the parables. John does neither. The miracles in John are given as signs and were chosen with a great deal of discrimination in order to interpret certain great truths. For example, the discourse on the bread of life follows the feeding of the 5,000. There are 11 specific signs in the Gospel of John. Thirdly, there are no parables in the fourth Gospel. The word parable does occur one time in John 10 verse 6, but it is not the regular Greek word parabolo, but paroimia. This word ought not to be translated parable at all. The story of the Good Shepherd is not a parable, it is a discourse. John gives a chronological order which is well to note. The fact of the matter is, if you will follow it along, it will give you a ladder on which you can fit the three-year period of Christ. For example, in John 1, verse 29 and 35, it says, the next day, and later on it says, the next day. He's giving not only a logical, but also a chronological sequence in his gospel. He also gives attention to places and cities. For example, Bethabara, beyond Jordan, John 1, 28. Then Cana of Galilee, John 2, 1. The deity of Christ is emphasized in this gospel and is actually in the foreground. But the humanity of Christ is not lost sight of. Do you notice it is only John who tells us about his trip through Samaria and that he sat down at the well and that he was weary with his journey. Can you think of anything more human than that? Well, I can think of one thing. Jesus wept. And it is John who tells us that, by the way. The name Jesus is used almost entirely to the exclusion of Christ in this gospel. That is strange because the emphasis is upon the deity of Christ and you think that he would use the name Christ. Then why does he use the name Jesus? Well, it is because God became man. There is a mighty movement in this gospel and it is stated in John 16.28. I came forth from the Father and came into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. God became a man. This is the simple statement of the sublime fact. Dear friend, you've been listening to God's Word and I'm sure that you've learned some important truths. Well, I hope that you put them into practice. Put them into practice and see what God can do in and through your life. Let's pray right now. Lord, we thank you that we were able to listen to your Word. And, O oh God, we need the Spirit's power to enable us to put into practice what we've heard. Because so often we are filled with knowledge but we, we refuse or seldom do or put into practice what we've learned. Enable us, O oh God, and I pray that each one of us would put our lives on the line, as it were, to experience your grace and your power as we follow through with what we've heard. In Christ's name, amen.